0: You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Man, conversion to Christ is a sweet thing. Those words in Psalm 23, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death that we just sang to the Lord, as we were singing that I was thinking, and, and I mean this, and this might be funny to some of you, but. Literally, my first introduction to that phrase was through an ungodly rap song called Gangster's Paradise. (laughs) And it never heard Psalm 23. didn't know where it came from. And so to be sitting here singing that phrase back to the Lord, man, this conversion is good. Matthew 7. So we've been coming through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in Matthew chapter 7, verse... 12 let's read this text and then we'll pray so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets let's pray father thank you for your word Thank you for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for being our shepherd. You're our shepherd, Lord. And right, right beside us, Lord, goodness and mercy all our days. Thank you, thank you so much, Lord, for not, not just leaving us in darkness and confusion. But Lord, you've given us your word, the light of your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see. Give us eyes to see. Such a common verse here, Lord, that many of us have heard many, many times. And God, my prayer is that you would open it up to us. Give us hearts full of humility before you. Hearts ready to obey, ready to submit. Thank you, Lord. Help us in this time, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 7, 12, uh, we're just going to be in this one verse this morning. It's often called the golden rule. So sure you've heard that, the golden rule. Where does that come from, that name, the golden rule? Well, one commentator that I read he said this the common description of this saying as the golden rule is traditionally traced to the Roman Emperor Alexander Severus from AD 222 in that area who though not a Christian was reputedly so impressed by the comprehensiveness of this maxim of Jesus as a guide to good living that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. Golden rule. He was very impressed by this uh, maxim, he says here, of Jesus. And I want us to be the same way. This is a beautiful, glorious command of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, it's been hijacked so often uh, by elementary school classrooms, right? Now, and if, you, if, you're an, sorry, if you're an elementary teacher, you should put this in your room. It's no problem. But what I mean is it's been seen as sort of this cutesy thing. Do another's. It's a real cutesy command. Uh, there's a familiarity with it, I guess, that maybe has created some of that. And I want, I want this command to be pulled out of that to be seen in the, beauti- the, the beautiful glory that it has. I want us to see that this morning. So strive to lean in and get past familiar, familiarity with the verse. And let's see what's here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Um, if you have a study guide that, around you that might help you, I've got several out. Um, if you see some empty ones and a neighbor that doesn't have one, maybe you could pass it to them. That may help you. Let's start off with this, the golden rule in context. So I want us to understand um, what's, what is the context in which this very well-known command is sitting in the Sermon on the Mount and in the whole Bible. Okay? So where do we place this command in the structure of the Sermon on the Mount? Now this might be, this is just kind of some mechanical stuff like, why is it here? You know, what's the placement of this verse? But go with me, I think it'll help you if you lean in and understand. Now, the golden rule in its immediate context isn't quite as clear as the golden rule in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So if you think about the immediate context, you know, some people have said that um, chapter 7, verse 1 through 12 are... The common thread there is relationships, like don't judge your brothers. Here's how you treat dogs and hogs, it says there in verse 6. Um, here's your relation to God the Father, and then now here's your relation to the whole world. And that's, you know, maybe so, but that's not, it's not super obvious in the text. Something that is more obvious, if you were here last week, chapter 7, verse 7 through 11, just kind of glance at it. It's this verse about seeing God as this good father. Ask, and will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. He's a good father. that gives good gifts to his children. So you have this vertical thing, and then it kicks it out to this horizontal thing of whatever you want men to do to you, whatever you, whatever you wish men would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. It's a lot like the greatest and the second greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment in the law? They asked Jesus. Jesus said the greatest commandment, vertical, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, horizontal, and love your neighbor as yourself, which has a lot of connections to the golden rule, as we'll see in a minute. But, so there's something to this, it's more clear, there's something to this, vertical, the way you view God as your father, a good God, that you go to consistently and constantly in prayer, and then here's how you treat other people, horizontally. Okay, so this is kind of the immediate context. But I want you to understand the bigger context, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this sermon from Jesus, how does the golden rule fit into this sermon? If you broke up the Sermon on the Mount into three sections, it would be like this. I have it there in your study guide. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 16 is a sermon intro. This is where we find out he's preaching to the people of God. He's preaching to kingdom citizens, and he begins to describe them. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the the peacemakers, and on it goes. He describes them in his sermon introduction. And then, chapter 5, verse 17, 17, to chapter 7, verse 12, our verse today, is the body of the sermon. So you got an introduction, then you got the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And our verse today is at the very end of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And then, chapter 7, verse 13 through 29 is the conclusion where really Jesus brings everybody to a crossroads. It's two ways. It's the narrow way or the broad way. The easy path or the difficult path. You're going to be a good tree or a bad tree. You're going to build your house on a rock or on sand. He just brings everybody in the conclusion to a crossroads. Which way will you go? Right? So, I want you to understand this. Where does the golden rule fit into this? At the very end, the last verse, the last statement of the body of the Sermon on the Mount is the golden rule. Now, one reason we understand 517 to 712 to be the body of the Sermon on the Mount is because of a literary device called an inclusio. Inclusio. Now, now if that's you've heard us say this many times, like, Uh, there's bookends. That's what that is. It's a bracketing principle of you got this side and you got this side. It's a bracketing principle. It's it's bookends in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what are those bookends? 517. What does 517 say? I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. What does chapter 7 verse 12 say? It says, whatever you want men to do, you do also them for this is the law and the prophets. So what's What's the bookends here are the Law and the Prophets. The brackets that are here that show us the body of the Summer on the Mount is this phrase, the Law and the Prophets. And we see Jesus dealing with understanding the Law and the Prophets all in the midst in between those two bookends, okay? So I want you to understand it that way. So think about it like this. Jesus says, I'm not here to destroy the Law and the Prophets, 517, beginning the body of the Son. I'm not here to destroy the Law and the Prophets. In fact, I want you to obey him. In fact, he keeps going. He says, don't relax these things like the Pharisees do. And he gives, in chapter, at the end of chapter 5, you remember he gives six examples of how the Pharisees had relaxed the law and the prophets. And Jesus saying, here's the right, right way to understand it. So he's dealing with that all the way through. And then he closes it out, Seven twelve. our verse today. How does he close it all out? He says, look, let me give a summary statement here. Whatever you want people, whatever you wish people would do for you, do also to them. That's the Law and the Prophets. It's a summary statement of everything that has gone before in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want you to understand the golden rule in the context of, of, this, of this Sermon on the Mount. Now, so here's what we know from that. Here's what we know. We know that then there's a focus in the Sermon on the Mount on this thing called the Law and the Prophets. Okay, so let's talk about it for a minute. The golden rule in the context of the law and the prophets. Okay, There's this focus of the law and the prophets. The golden rule is a summary of the law and the prophets, chapter 7, verse 12. And the Sermon on the Mount has a focus on the law and the prophets. So let's take some time to focus on the law of the prophets. Now, I've got you four questions there on your study guide. And I think we can answer these pretty quickly, sort of a shotgun approach, okay? Number one, what is the law and the prophets? What is this thing? Okay, this is the entire Hebrew Bible. This is what we often call our Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. It's our Old Testament. If you're looking at our our English versions, you got uh, starting in Genesis, your first 17 books of the Old Testament. It's your history laid out from the creation, Genesis, all the way to to Esther, the return of the people of Israel out of Babylon in captivity. So you got the history, first 17 books. Then you got five books of, of sort of poetry. Right? Your Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, five books there. And then your last 17 books in the Old Testament are your prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and, and all the way to Malachi. And these prophets and the words that they spoke fit into that history in the first 17 chapters. This is, this is the entirety of the law and the prophets. The Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Second question. How do the law and the prophets self-testify? In other words, if you said, how should we think and feel about the law and the prophets? Well, what do they say about themselves? What do the law and the prophets say about themselves? Well, there's a ton of places you could go. You can go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure. Making wise the simple. And you could go on and on there, Psalm 19. Or you could go to Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. See, they testify something glorious, something beautiful, that that you should highly value the law and the prophets, is what they say about themselves. And you you could do that all over the Old Testament. Third question. How does Jesus think and feel about the law and the prophets? How does he think and feel about the law and the prophets? Well, if you just stay in the summer on the mount where we're at, what did did we read there in 517? He said, I didn't come to destroy them. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He sees himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he goes on to say, he goes on to warn against you relaxing. Don't relax even the least of these commandments. In fact, that's what he rebukes the Pharisees for. They're law relaxers. He, go, he goes on to, to say, let me summarize the law. And How does Jesus think and feel about the law and the prophets? He summarizes them and says, whatever you want men to do, you do also them. That's the law and the prophets. He expects obedience there. Or you could go read John, if, if you want a few scriptures to jot down. John 5, verse 38 through 40, where he looks at these Pharisees and he says, he says, the word of God doesn't abide in you. He says, the word of God doesn't abide in you. He says, and, and why is that say? He says, for you search the scriptures... You search the scriptures and in them you think you have life. But these are they, these scriptures are they, which testify of me. He understood himself to be the main point of the law and the prophets. He valued the law and the prophets. They all pointed to Christ. You could go read Luke 24 and you see that Jesus' resurrection sermons were expositions of the law and the prophets. But I mean, go read that in Luke 24. It's so interesting. Literally, he's died for sinners. He's risen from the dead. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Isn't that important? And what does he say? It says, uh, Luke 24, 27 says, Beginning at Moses, it's the law, and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, what did Jesus, How did Jesus think and feel about the law and the prophets? He highly, highly valued them. Last question, number four. How should we think and feel about the law, the, the law and the prophets? We should love it. We should enjoy it. We should read our Old Testaments. Love the Word of God. This is the revelation of who God is and what He's like. This is the revelation of His righteous standard to understand what's right and what's wrong. Read it. Love it. Enjoy it. Be mesmerized by it. It's the way we ought to think and feel About the law and the prophets. Now I want you to think about something. If somebody came to you. And said hey give me your ear. For just a minute. Give me your ear. I'm going to give you a one sentence summary. Of all the law and the prophets. All this revelation from God. Through Moses and all the prophets of old, a thousand generations, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this whole thing, this revelation of God, give it from all these, and I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. Well, what would you think? No way, man. No way. Not, not unless you are son of God incarnate. God Almighty came down in flesh who's able to endure punishment for another under the wrath of God and then rise from the dead. If, the, if I might believe you, but that was you. And that's exactly what we have in the golden rule. We've got all that revelation of God, thousands of years, and we got it summarized in this place. Just imagine that. What if somebody asked you to do that? If you didn't know what Jesus said here, that's cheating. If you didn't know what Jesus said here, and somebody came to you and said, hey, could you please just uh, b- boil it down for me? Bowl down all the law and the prophets, Genesis to Malachi, bullet it down for me in, in one statement. What would you say? No way, man. I can't do that. And so I think what I want you to see in that is w- when we read, I-, I read to you Matthew seven twelve just a moment ago. I've quoted it to you a couple of times. When we read the golden rule, we are in the presence of unthinkable wisdom majesty unmatched glory we're in the presence of christ who can say this kind of stuff anybody else tries it they're either wrong or arrogant but not christ he's gonna boil it down into this sentence in matthew seven twelve. now before we go there though okay so we're about to dig into the golden rule we're, we're getting ready to do that but before we do that I want to mention, I just want to highlight and try to deal with three objections, okay? These are three objections to the view of the law and the prophets that I just asked you to to take, okay? I'm asking you to take Jesus' view of the law and the prophets. I'm asking you to take this view of the law and the prophets that highly values and adores God's written word in the Old Testament, okay? Now, let me, I want to mention to you three objections to that and try to move through that quickly. To maybe equip you not to fall prey to these objections. Number one. Number one would be the legalism claim. The legalism claim. Now we've talked about this a good bit coming through the Sermon on the Mount. I I believe the Sermon on the Mount has forced us to talk about this a good bit. But the legalism claim would be, you know, that language of standards of righteousness. That language of obedience to god's word man that's legalism language that'd be the legal the legalism claim that's that's legalism stuff think about how that argument goes look at him over there reading the bible you know reading it all the time and talking about the bible all the time and striving to obey the bible man he's such a legalist that's what this claim that's what this claim is doesn't he know about grace all that obedience stuff doesn't he know about grace now, as we've said, the Sermon on the Mount absolutely obliterates this mindset. Think about the opening and the closing of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The opening and closing of that body. I didn't come to abolish the Law and the Prophets, but to fulfill them. Don't relax the Law and the Prophets. All of it's, all the Law and the Prophets is in this. Whatever you want men to do, you do also to them. Obey, obey that. This is a valuing of the Law and the Prophets from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, If it was said, hey, obey the summer on the mount and you'll be righteous before God. Obey the summer on the mount and you'll have eternal life. If that's what was said, that would be legalism. That would be you think there's some way you can earn your way into heaven. And listen, no amount of works of righteousness, no matter how good you think you are, will get you into heaven, will make you right with God. It won't. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make you right with the Lord. So what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching is not that. What the Sermon on the Mount is teaching, it's it's showing us what the redeemed people of God look like. Those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those saved by grace alone through Christ alone, through faith alone, those, say, those saved by Christ, through faith in Him, this is what they look like. Read this on the mouth. This is what the redeemed people of God look like. And so they have a new heart and a new life to long for God's standards and strive after His commandments. So, brothers and sisters, value the law and the prophets. Don't fall prey to the, this, that's legalism, claim. Second, second objection, the picking and choosing claim, the picking and choosing. How does this argument go? Think about this argument. Uh, but what about the ceremonial requirements in the law? You don't keep those, do you? Uh, what about all the food laws and the focus on circumcision? and those? What about all that stuff? In the law and the prophets. Why are you picking and choosing what to obey? I want to obey this part of the law and the prophets, but I, but I don't adhere to this part. Why are you picking and choosing? You don't think we should keep the feast of unloving bread, do you? And so why shouldn't we just throw it all out? Shouldn't we just throw the law and the prophets out altogether? And first thing I want to say is this. This objection is not hard to answer, Okay. I think sometimes um, I've heard it said like, "Yeah, that's a difficult answer." No, it's not. That is not a hard objection to answer. And I want you to feel the. And maybe I can make a few statements that help you feel the the the, uh, the ease of answering that. Anybody that comes with that objection, they've not you know studied for fifteen minutes what the answer to it is. Okay, so this it's an easy thing to deal with. Think about it like this: when you read your Old Testament, you realize that God is. Read your Old Testament. God's revealing himself and God's revealing his righteous standard primarily to a group of people, a nation called Israel. To and through the nation of Israel. That's a real nation, a real people group called Israel. And he's primarily revealing himself and his standards to and through that people group called Israel. Okay. Now, why Israel? Well, God brought about Israel because through Abraham was going to come a Messiah and Abraham had a son named Jake I mean Isaac right and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons and those 12 sons became Israel and through this people that God created Israel he's going to bring about his Messiah that's why the revelation is coming to Israel Christ is going to bring the Messiah through Israel and so what that means is you're going to have a mixture the commandments and the expectations that you find in your Old Testament are going to be a mixture. Mostly, they will apply to all humanity, not just the nation of Israel, like all humanity, like like don't murder, (laughs) applies to all humanity. Or love God, that command in Deuteronomy 6, that applies to all humanity. But some of the commands that you find in the Old Testament are going to serve a purpose for the people of Israel, and they'll be fulfilled when Christ has come. So in a simple example, this would be the food laws. The food laws were meant, it's really clear from Mark 7 and Acts 10, that the food laws were meant to keep the people of Israel separate and apart from those Gentiles. So that, and for the purpose of the Messiah coming through these people. But once the Messiah has come, there's no more need to separate Israel from the Gentiles. The food laws are fulfilled. So I want you to think about this. Christians are not picking and choosing whenever they hold to commands in the Old Testament, such as commands against homosexuality, but they don't adhere to commands like the food laws or ceremonies or whatever, okay? They're they're not picking and choosing. Their desire, a Christian's desire, is to adhere to the whole Bible, to take the entire scriptures, the whole revelation of God, and obey Him in that. All right, third objection. This is the the love is better than law claim. The love, love is better than the law claim. Now, how does this argument go? Man, it ain't about the law, it's about love. You people all you know reading your Bible and, and talking about keeping God's word, but not me. I'm just loving God and loving others. It ain't about love. It ain't about the law, it's about love. Now this this is really a strange misunderstanding of love and the law. And here's why I say this. Try to think about this one for just a minute, okay? Think about this statement. I'm not about the law. I'm about love. But, but what does Jesus say about love? That is, What's the greatest commandments in the law? Jesus, love God. That's part of the law. And love your neighbor as part of the law. In fact, it's a summary of the whole law and the prophets is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see how strange that misunderstanding is? It's like saying, man, I'm not about the law. I'm about the summary of the law. Love. I'm not about the law. I'm about love, the summary Of the law. It's a misunderstanding of what love is. To this group, love is just a good feeling, a good vibe towards God, a good vibe towards other people's people. Whereas Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So according to the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12, and the greatest commandment, or the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22, the law and the prophets are a wonderful place to learn how, the specifics of how to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So, brothers and sisters, do not devalue. That's my, that's my charge. Don't devalue the law and the prophets, your Old Testament, for, from it, because of any of these objections. The love is better than law claim or legalism claim. Or, or any of these claims, okay? So let me, let me try to just summarize this point, and we'll dig into the golden rule, okay? Here's a summary of this point. Jesus, as we see in the scripture, does not minimize, undervalue, or ignore the law and the prophets. The world will tempt you to minimize, undervalue, and ignore the law and the prophets, the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's like an impenetrable wall standing against that temptation to ignore, undervalue, or minimize the law and the prophets. So, Grace Community Church, don't do that. Don't, don't minimize it. Don't, don't devalue the law and the prophets, but read it, love it, enjoy it. See how Christ is the main point of it. See God's righteous standard in it. Love the law and the prophets. Now, what I want us to do now is we're going to focus in on a summary statement of the law and the prophets, which is Matthew 7.12, our verse today, and this golden rule. This golden rule. Now I want to, I want to try to make uh, four observations, four observations concerning the golden rule in Matthew 7.12. Number one, the golden rule is supremely important. It is very, very important. It's not just in the elementary school classrooms. Not just there. It is supremely important. Let me give you a couple reasons for this. Now one is ground we've already covered. Think about that. Jesus, what's the last thing you're going to say in the body of this sermon to summarize everything that's gone before? Golden rule. What? You said, whatever you wish others do to you, do also them. This is the law and the prophets. What's the summary statement of all that revelation of the law and the prophets that have come before? What's the summary? Here's the golden rule. Man, that's important. You see how big this is? Let me try to come at it from a little bit different angle. The golden rule is another way of saying the second greatest commandment. You love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the golden rule is another way of saying the second greatest commandment. So so again, Matthew 22, what's the great commandment, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you've got this similar phrase there. So so the golden rule, the second greatest commandment, what's the similarities? Well, both of them have this language of this is the law and the prophets. On this command depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so you've got that going on. And you've also got, think about the command, the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like you're, it's like you're supposed to take you know, your skin off of you, put your skin on someone else so that when you see them, you see yourself. And love them like you would love yourself. What does that sound like? Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Golden rule, second greatest commandment, very, very similar here. So therefore, therefore, we need to take this command very, very seriously. Second, second observation. The golden rule is positive and practical. It's a positive command, not a don't, but a do. It's very practical in nature, okay? It's positive and And practical. So the verse says, verse uh, seven, chapter seven, verse twelve. It says, "Do also to them." Do. There's something to do. That's positive. That's not don't. Although it can include that. But but he's calling you positively to do something, not negatively to don't do something. Do what? Do what you wish they would do to you. Isn't that so practical? Do what you wish they would do to you. This is so practical. Now, now. I think it'll help you understand what I'm emphasizing and what I think the golden rule is emphasizing. If we think about love for others in general for just a moment, okay? So think about love for other people is multifaceted, right? So, so I'll just give you three layers. You've got a call to love others has to, something to do with your affections toward them. Okay, that's one. It also has to do with this negative thing of don't do them any harm. We read that in Romans 13. Don't don't do them any harm. That's love. And then third layer is this positive act. Not just don't do them harm, but do them good. Practical acts of love. So affections, negatively don't do them any harm. And then positively do them good. Practical acts of love. Now, if you think about the second greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment swallows up all of that. Love, Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself that involves the affections that involves do no harm to them and it involves practical acts of love to them practical good to them okay if you think about romans 13 you go back later and read romans 13 verse 8 through 10 in fact i'll quickly read one verse from that listen to this in romans 13 what's the emphasis here Romans 13 verse 10 says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong. So do no harm. Do no wrong. So so Romans 13 is emphasizing not that affections piece and not that whole thing, but it's emphasizing that negative thing of do them no harm. Don't do them any wrong. That's love and love is a fulfilling of the law. But what does the what does the golden rule emphasize the golden rule emphasizes a positive, practical focus. Not just don't do them harm, but whatever you want men to do to you, there's something to do. Do that to them. Do that for them. Treat them in that way. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, many scholars have, have highlighted this point. That if you look back, even before Christ, at different religions and different philosophies, there are versions of the golden rule that are there. Okay, but but they're all in the negative form. It's all something like, um, hey, don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Something like that. Don't don't treat others in a way that you would hate to be treated. You see how it has a negative bent? It has a negative bent there. And that's good. There's nothing nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But I want you to think about what's being left out. If that's all that there was what's being left out. Well, as long as I'm not harming anybody, as long as I'm minding my own business, just keep to myself, don't bother, don't bother others, don't hurt anybody, then I'm keeping the golden rule. You see where that can leave you? It can leave you right there. But the golden rule doesn't leave you right there out of the mouth of Jesus. It's very unique to Christianity. It's a called a positive, active, practical doing acts of love, doing acts of good towards other people. The golden rule doesn't allow me to sit back and live a life of personal piety as long as I don't hurt anybody else. No, it calls you into something else to do good to others. It's actually a reminder to us. That, that those tendencies we have towards individualism that can sound like my personal piety, I just don't hurt anybody else, it can sound like that. That's got to die. This is a call to love other people like Christ loved, loved us and gave himself for us. To actively do them good. What do you want men to do to you? Do also. There's something to do. Do also to them. To care for other people the way that you wish to be cared for. This is real Practical love. Now, third, the golden rule is a really high standard. It's a really, really high standard. Um, In other words, you, brothers and sisters, you need prayer. You need to to pray to be able to obey this. You need power from God to be able to obey this. You cannot passively uh, just kind of float. If you just float, you just passively float along, you won't walk this out. You have to actively strive and push in and call out to God. You need help from the Lord to obey this high standard. Now, one of the reasons why I say this is such a high standard is because what Jesus does here is he uses the powerful human instinct of self-love as a measure. If you like to write stuff down, maybe jot that down. The powerful human instinct of self-love. Because Jesus takes that powerful human instinct of self-love and he uses it as a measure. This is how you ought to treat others. Now let me see if I can give a simple explanation of what I mean by that. We have powerful instincts of self-love or self-care or, or self-interest built into us. Okay? Here's what I mean. When you're hungry, you have a powerful desire in you to do what? Eat, right? If you're thirsty, you have a powerful desire in you. Now, you don't just go, oh, who cares? I'm thirsty, no big deal. No, no, you, you go after this, uh, this uh, self-interest of, I, I got to get something to drink in me for my health, for my good. If you're lonely... You have these powerful desires for friendship, companionship, those things. If you're sad, these powerful desires to be joyful and happy and not sad anymore. If you're in pain, powerful desires for relief. If you're in danger, powerful desires for safety. This is this 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 uh, this thing within you, this powerful human instinct within you of self love and self care. Now, what Jesus does is he points to that powerful instinct and he tells us, use that as the measure of how you treat other people. Now, I'm saying that's a really high standard. Use that as a measure. Look, look at the way you do self-care and self-love and use that as a measure of how you, how you care for other people. Now, it's really brilliant. It literally covers everything. In almost every situation, you can ask yourself that. How would I like to be dealt with in this situation? Okay, so deal with others in the same way. John Piper said it like this. It seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body, wrap it around another person, so that I feel that I am that other person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety, my own health, my own success, and my own happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. Now, using this instinct of, of self-love, it's not necessarily talking about self-love in the sense of this sinful desire. Because so think, about, think about Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but always consider others better than yourself. Now, that's talking about the sin of selfishness. Don't, don't let that reign, but consider others better than yourself. What I don't think Jesus is saying here is, hey, let your selfishness, that sin of selfishness, be the measure for which you love others. But the next verse in Philippians, I think, does deal with it. Philippians 2, 4, it says, Look not, look not only to your own interest. So it doesn't say you should, look, you should look to your own interest. That's built in you. But look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And Jesus says in the golden rule, the way that you go after your own interest, let that be the measure by which you go after the interest of others. It's the golden rule. It's a radical calling. It's a high calling. I want you to think about for a minute. How powerful is this instinct in you of self-love and self-care and self-interest? How powerful is it? Think about this. This morning already, you woke up this morning, you came to this meeting, you've already made hundreds of decisions Hundreds of decisions that are rooted in that desire of self-interest and self-love. You've already made those decisions. You didn't even realize it. It just just flowed out of you. You woke up this morning and you went and you got a glass of cold water. Why'd you do that? You didn't even think about it. Just self-interest. I'm thirsty. I need something to drink. Why'd you put ice in it? Because it's better that way. You took a shower this morning. You self-interest of, well, I want to be clean. I don't want to stink when I show up at the church meeting. And you probably made that shower warm. Why? It's better that way. feels better that way. And you could go on and on and on of hundreds of decisions you've already made that are rooted in this instinct of self-love and self-interest. It's powerful. It's very powerful. You're doing it. You don't even realize it. Thousands of times. Now, listen, the whole world is functioning that way. The whole world is functioning driven by self-preservation Self-satisfaction, and it's not always a bad thing, but here's the radical thing that Jesus calls his people into. Take that, take that drive that's there of self-care, and I want you to bend it towards the world, and I want you to live it out towards other people. That's a high, that's a high calling. That's a high standard. Very high standard. D.A. Carson, Carson said this about this verse. Nothing could be more calamitous than to meditate long and hard on Matthew 7 12 and then to resolve to improve a little. He says, Nothing could be more, more of a calamity than to read this verse and go, yeah, I need to, I need to improve a little. This is a shift. This is not just your own interest, not just the the way you think about yourself and care for yourself, but bend that towards a lost world. Care for others the way you love yourself. It's a radical shift. It's a high, high standard. Dea Carson goes on to say the discipleship which Jesus requires is absolute and radical. The golden rule is a Holy Spirit-inspired command to get out of your own self-centered world Fight to put yourself in other people's shoes, to rejoice in their happiness, to weep with those who weep, to resolve passionately to serve other people the way that you wish to be served or enjoy being served. It's an inspired command to do those things. Now, fourth, the golden rule should be broadly applied. Fourth observation. The golden rule should be broadly applied. In other words, there's lots of application, tons of application to this command, which makes sense. It's it's the law of the prophets, right? Um, If you doubt that statement that it should be and can be broadly applied, you know, use it in your parenting, right? You'll find yourself every day, like the way you'll come down to it when it's all said and done, you'll look at your child and say, uh, what would you want them to do for you? And they would answer and you say, well, son, do that for them. And it just, it's just broad application in almost every sphere of life. And so what I want to do is I want to give us, just as, as quick as I can, I want to give us some different categories, okay? Several different categories to quickly think, think through and see how the golden rule applies in all these different categories, all these different spheres, okay? So first category is the category of justice. Justice, okay? What if your rights were stripped from you? What if your life is being unjustly threatened or a loved one, one that you love, is being unjustly taken away from you? Or what if you're being unjustly slandered, lied about and slandered? What would you, what would you want men to do for you in that situation? It's justice, right? It's almost funny. Uh, John Calvin said this. He says, everyone shows himself to be an exact scholar of justice. When it suits himself. So when it's you that are under the injustice, you, you look you know exactly what other people should do in that moment. But then the problem comes is when it's with somebody else. And they're being dealt with unjustly. What does Jesus call us to? Matthew seven twelve. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9 gives us, a, gives us another uh, verse that speaks into that. Listen to this. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. Wouldn't you want that done for you? Do that also to them. What if you were being slandered? How would you you want others to, to help you in that? What if you were being beaten by your husband? How would you want others to help you in that? It's amazing to me. This thing even gets into the realm of of injustice like abortion. Abortion stuff. What if if you were being dragged against your will into a so-called medical facility under the protection of the law to be dismembered and murdered? It speaks to that. What, What would you want others to do for you? Do also for them. Do also for them second category the category of need need what if you were hungry or poor or had some desperate need weighing on you that you needed for your family what would you want others to do for you well whatever comes to your mind whatever you want others to do for you look serve others in this way Be aggressive. Don't be passive in serving others in this way. Be aggressive in serving other people when they're poor and needy and hungry or thirsty, or whatever it might be. Listen to this verse. This is Titus 3.14. It says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. And not be unfruitful. Man, we need to learn that. To devote ourselves to good works and meet cases of urgent need. And therefore not be unfruitful. What would you want men to do for you? Do also for them. Third category. What about friendship? Category of friendship. Have you ever felt lonely or isolated from other people? Disconnected from others? Well, what would you want people to do for you? When you felt like that. Friendship. Uh, reaching out to you. Well, look, look, whatever you would want people to do to you in the midst of loneliness like that, bend that towards others. And don't be, and when, this is not a call to be, well, I didn't do them any wrong. No, no, don't be passive. Be aggressive in this. There's a sweet phrase in Proverbs 27.10. It says, the sweetness of a friend. I love that phrase. The sweetness of a friend. How much do you want the sweetness of a friend? Well, bend that towards others. The golden rule. Fourth category hurt. What about hurt uh, or, or uh, pain, brokenness? If you ever been hurt or broken down or betrayed, felt like you've been wronged, you just, you just, or you just experienced some kind of heavy loss. You ever done that? Ever experienced heavy loss? What do you want others to do for you in that situation? Compassion, sympathy, care. Romans 12, 15 says, Weep with those who weep. When you want that in that scenario, man, bend that toward others. 1 Corinthians 12 says, When one suffers, they all suffer together. Man, you want that. Compassion. Bend that towards others. Another category. What about sin or deception, that category? So let's, let's say you're caught up in sin. Let's say that, um, that you're deceived and you don't know it. Now, of course, that's what it means to be deceived, right? You don't realize you're deceived. So you're caught up in sin, you're wrapped up in sin, you're wrapped up in deception. What would you want others to do for you if you were wrapped up in sin and deception? What would you want other people to do for you? Think about that. Would you want them to just leave you in it? Just ignore it? Just be really polite to you while you drown? Is that what you would want? And the answer is no, you don't want that. You want somebody that will help you, somebody that will get you out of it, somebody that would be willing to say even the hard thing or the uncomfortable thing to get them out of it. Well, look, Whatever. that's what you want them to do to you. Do also to them. Do also to them. There's a really sweet verse in James 5 it says something like that listen it says my brothers if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back not don't just be polite till he drowns but brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins you know another verse that says love covers a multitude of sins This says bringing them back when they're wandering covers a multitude of sins. That's love. It's a loving thing to do. What would you want others to do for you if you were in sin and deception? Well, do that for them. Another category, just a few more. What about prayer? Do you wish others to pray for you? To pray for your faithfulness and your fruitfulness? To pray for your children? Do you wish that they would pray for you? Well, bend that towards others. I love Colossians 4.12, it, it, it says that Epaphras, you go read about Epaphras in Colossians 4.12, it says he's always laboring on your behalf in prayer. Man, he was constantly bringing these people before the throne of God. and call, Man, what an, what an example. We want people to do that for us and pray for others. Another, another category, you know, it gets into different kinds of relationships, right? What about the parent-child relationship? Does it go there? Of course it does. Think about you as, you as parents. So parents, a lot, of you, a lot of you have faced situations where your parents neglected you to go after their career. And maybe they took care of your needs, but man, they didn't train you up in the way you should go. They didn't pour the word of God into your life. They went after their careers. Well, look, you, you, don't want, you, you didn't want them to do that to you. Don't do that to others. What did you want your parents to do to you? To train you up in the word of God. Do that to your children. Or, or children, all the children in the room. Try, try to, so children in the room for a minute. Try to picture yourself. You're going to get older one day. Lord willing, probably you're going to become a parent. Now imagine you tell your child no to something. And they look at you like you are wanting to suck all the fun out of their life. And that's your whole aim in life. Do you want that to happen? And, and all the children in the room go, no, I wouldn't want my children to do that. Look, don't do that to your parents. Don't do that to your parents. No, understand that your parents, they love you and they care for you and they say something you, don't, you might not understand. You don't fully understand it. They mean you well. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. What about evangelism? What about that category? Broadly apply. We're just going all over the place. What about evangelism? What if you were lost right now? Imagine it. Lost on a path to hell. If that was you right now, without Christ in this world, try to put yourself in the shoes of lost people. Now, what would you want a Christian to do to you? What would you want a Christian to do for you? Just talk about everything except what matters the most? No. Just be really friendly to you and nice to you until you die and go to hell? No. You would want, if you know you're lost, you know you're headed on this path to hell, you, want, you would want, think about it, a Christian to come and be willing to tell you the truth of the gospel so that your soul can be saved and you can have eternal life with Christ. Well, whatever you want others to do to you, whatever you wish they would do for you, turn that in evangelism. Do, do also to them. And we could go on and on and on, but I'm going to stop right there. And I want to close out with a warning. Here's the warning. The golden rule is not the gospel. Okay? That's a common mistake. But you need to understand that the golden rule is not the gospel. Now, are you aware of this kind of error? That the golden rule is understood to be or as the gospel. Okay? Are you aware of that? In other words, you ask somebody, well, tell me what the gospel is. And man, the gospel... It, you know, it's the golden rule. I just say, you know what the Christian message is? The Christian message is whatever you want me to do for you, do also to them. What's the Christian message, man? The Christian message is is uh, just love God and love people. Summary of the law. They don't say that summary of the law piece, but that's the Christian message, man. Just love God and love people. That's a common mistake, a common error. And so I want to say right here that the golden rule is not the gospel. It's not true. The golden rule is not the gospel. It's the summary of the law. The greatest commandment is not the gospel, it's the summary of the law. In fact, hearing the golden rule, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, and hearing the, the, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, man, that ought to produce a weight in you. If you don't have Christ, you ought to hear that. If you're hearing it right, you ought to hear that and go, man, I have failed. I have failed terribly. I've disobeyed the golden rule and the greatest commands every day of my life. This is horrible. What kind of shape am I in? What do I deserve for my rebellion? That's what it should produce when you hear that without Christ. It's a summary of the law. It shows you how far you've fallen short of the glory of God. So what is the Christian message? What is the gospel? The, The Christian message is this. That every single one of us have done that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against our God, rebelled against Him so terribly that you've literally taken the highest commands. First, second, golden rule, the highest commands. And you you have just terribly disobeyed these things before God on a regular basis. All of us have done that. And the message is that we can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus went to the cross... He bled and died and suffered under the wrath of God for those sins. Your rebellion against the golden rule. Our rebellion against the greatest commands. Love God, love your neighbors, yourself. He died for those sins in our lives. Took the punishment so we don't have to take it. Took the wrath of God so that the wrath of God is extinguished and we don't have to sit under his wrath anymore. We don't have to go to hell. But instead, you put your hope in Christ and you have eternal life. It's the Christian message. And those who've been redeemed by this gospel, they're made new creations. So they're given new hearts and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them. And guess what they can strive after now? The golden rule. Now they have new hearts to strive after the golden rule and the greatest commandment. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do that. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Thank you, Lord, that you've dealt with our sin. Lord, we have we, these high things that you lay before us, in the greatest commandments, in this summary of the law and the prophets, Lord, We know, we admit, we confess, God, we failed miserably. We praise you, Lord, for sending Christ to die for us, to save us, to make us new. And God, I pray that from that place, you would help us, Lord. Help us to obey you. Help us to strive in obedience, to deal with others in the way that we wish to be treated. Help us to love one another. Help us to love this lost world. And God, I pray that through that we would be the light, we would be a light in the midst of darkness. Thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.